welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Roy Shapira, Associate Professor at IDC Herzliya in Israel. We will discuss his new book, Law and Reputation, How the Legal System Shapes Behavior by Producing Information, which is published by Cambridge University Press. So welcome back to the show, Roy. Thanks so much, Brian. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, I'm I, I, I'm really delighted to have you back on. I loved the, the new Nick paper that we talked about the last time, and I thought this book was just fantastic. So congratulations on getting it out there. I think it's going to make a big impact on on the literature. Uh, but for people who aren't already familiar with the differing camps in the law and reputation literature, I wonder if you could give us a kind of quick backgrounder on how people have talked about these two different ways of shaping behavior and specifically their relationship in the past. Right, right. So I think it starts from uh, law and economics or the kind of the uh, conventional or standard version of law and economics. I think I opened the book with a, with a story about where I got this idea from, which is kind of uh, sitting in a, my first ever law and economics seminar and hearing two of the uh, kind of uh, founding fathers of the field, uh, Steve Chevelle and Mitch Polinsky, uh, presenting their own proposal. Uh, they had a, a paper, I think it went, it, it came out in Harvard Law Review in 2010 or something like that, where they proposed to basically abolish product liability. And the provocative argument, of course, you know, the argument is much more nuanced than I give it credit for here, but in a nutshell, the idea is that manufacturers will invest in the quality and safety of products even without the threat of legal liability, uh, simply because they care about maintaining their reputation, right? So if I'm a manufacturer of a baby car seat, I have all the reasons in the world to invest in the safety because if something bad happens, God forbid, then people will not purchase from me going forward. And so according to the, this kind of a basic law and economics logic, in markets where we, we think that these non-legal, these reputational forces are strong enough, we can scale back um, legal intervention. It's not cost-effective to keep this, uh, you know, uh, costly adjudication system uh, because we, we it simply adds only incremental contribution to deterrence. We would have kind of reputational deterrence. So the conventional wisdom that you alluded to is that reputation is a justification for reducing legal intervention. Reputation is an alternative to the legal system. So I was sitting through that and, and, and something bothered me and I, I actually distinctly recall getting out of the seminar and starting searching on the on, on the laptop mentions of reputation in Hein Online and I saw that this this logic is quite prevalent uh, in, in economic analysis and then I, I think I realized what was bothering me about the logic and what was bothering me is that this argument of reputation instead of litigation or reputation as a justification for deregulation there's an implicit assumption here that the legal system and the market system or law and reputation are completely independent of each other. So, so these colors, what they were assuming is that we can remove the law, we can remove the background threat of litigation, and the market forces will continue to function just the same. But to me, the intuition was, and I think the, 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 the moniker of fake news was, it was not in vogue back then, but if, if, if I would have thought about it right now, I think the immediate wars that come to, to, to mind of fake news. So in reality, the strength of the market forces is a function of the existing legal system. Uh, and if we remove the background threat of, of, of the law, of litigation, of uh, regulatory investigations, then 
reputation becomes much more cacophonic in a sense that, okay, say something bad happens with, to use the example we just mentioned, say something bad happens with the baby car seat. So if we wouldn't have regulatory investigations or private litigation, chances are that Brian and Roy perhaps wouldn't even learn about the accident or we would learn about the accident perhaps because the media covered it, but we wouldn't know to whom to attribute the blame because the manufacturer would come out and say, there's nothing wrong about this product. It's the parents haven't strapped the baby correctly or something like that. So the idea is that um, my idea was that the legal system, litigation and reputation are not independent of each other and litigation produces information on how the parties to the dispute behave, on what happened exactly, on how it happened. And that information helps us, helps outside observers, helps uh, people who are not parts to the dispute um, judge for themselves, evaluate for themselves whether they want to keep doing business with the parties to the disputes or not, whether I want to keep purchasing baby costs from this manufacturer or not. As I understand it, plenty of people have responded to the kind of reputational argument against enforcement through the legal system. How how is the argument that you're making different from previous arguments that people have made, kind of defending the legal system from this law and economics argument that we can rely on reputation instead? Right. So I think, if if I think about it, I, I don't think that the book's contribution is in telling us that reputation matters. Because I think we all know that from our everyday experience. We know that reputation matters. I, I, I don't think, I, don't, I even don't think that the book's main contribution is in telling us that things that happen in the courtroom affect the court of public opinion or vice versa, because that's intuitive as well. I think the main contribution um, of the book, the main innovation here, is to tell us how exactly, how exactly reputation matters and how exactly the law affects reputation. So provide us with the tools to kind of uh, be able to predict the, the, the magnitude and direction of these reputational effects in given legal areas, in given types of disputes. So uh, one thing that I do and that the literature doesn't do is I just I delve into this topic of reputation because reputation is, is much less intuitive than we give it credit for. I mean, um, reputation is a very, no, the, the process of losing one's reputation or reputational sanctions is very noisy. I mean, not all bad news is created equal because some companies and businessmen um, emerge from bad news, emerge from failures uh, relatively unscathed, while others go bankrupt. So um, there's now a burgeoning reputation literature that the legal system almost completely ignored in organization science and in management. There's also a, a burgeoning field of uh, practice of reputation measurement and reputation consultment that are, the consulting that I was uh, involved in. And the idea there is that similar behaviors lead to different reputational outcomes. Or another way to put it is that information, which was the focus of the previous, uh, the extant literature, information doesn't automatically translate into reputation, right? So if bad news breaks, doesn't mean that the, the, the company or the, the individual that is involved will suffer reputational loss. Uh, there, there are several stages here that we need to um, think about before we can say that there will be a reputational loss or reputational deterrence, so to speak. So damning information has to be widely diffused so that it reaches a critical mass of uh, stakeholders in order for the, uh, the reputational sanction to be meaningful, in order for you to lose 
kind of uh, future business opportunities enough that he would care about it. And even information that was revealed and that was widely diffused uh, still has to be uh, certified, so to speak, has to be perceived as credible for, for the audience, for the company stakeholders to, to, to consider it seriously and act on it. And even information that was revealed and was diffused and was certified still has to be properly attributed, meaning that stakeholders will be able to correctly interpret whether the, whether the problem, whether the adverse event is due to kind of a deep-seated uh, flaws that are likely to resurface in the future, or maybe it's due to uh, a one-off mistake, like a, a mistake by a low-level employee who was, uh, who was uh, subsequently fired from the company, because only then they can decide, they can make the correct, so to speak, reputation judgment on whether to keep doing business with the company or not. Well, so it seems pretty clear that litigation and the legal system communicates information. One of the things that was really interesting and kind of surprising to me about the book was that you argue really convincingly that it doesn't always communicate information in the way that we think it's going to. It doesn't always communicate the kind of information we think it's communicating. And it isn't always interpreted in the way we might anticipate that it's going to be interpreted. So, I mean, I wonder if you could kind of take each one of those and talk a little bit about what exactly is going on. Like, what kind of information ecosystem does the legal system actually generate in relation to reputation and corporate decision making? Right. So, I think the most intuitive part of it is that law enforcement actions, either private litigation or public enforcement by a regulator, at the most basic level, a lot of times they simply uh, uncover information, they extract inside information. Think about discovery and emails exchange during discovery. So the process uncovers information to which us, to which outside observers, to which market players weren't privy. And so the most basic, most intuitive aspect here is that litigation affects reputation uh, by producing new information. But the things that I think you alluded to in the, in the book is that a lot of times law enforcement, litigation, regulatory investigation affect reputations in counterintuitive ways, even without producing the, uh, new information. So one conduit, one channel is that uh, litigation can affect reputation uh, simply by changing the framing or the credibility or the saliency of existing pieces of information. So it can like uh, shape the scope and 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 the tone of media coverage. So one, of, I think one of the the part in the in in the book that I'm most proud of is um, I did uh, I, I I looked at the last twenty years of prize winning investigative reports, investigative reporting, and, and and I saw that in over half of these paradigmatic examples of um, uh, investigative journalism, the the legal sources like court documents or regulatory reports are this single most important source that enabled the investigative report. So, uh, so, so, so the law affects media reporting in that way. And the other aspect, which is, might be the most counterintuitive aspect in the book, mm-hmm. is that I learned, specifically when I, when I researched uh, corporate law litigation, corporate fiduciary duties litigation, that litigation is not always bad for, say, the defendant company's reputation. Litigation may actually help the defendant company's reputation. Uh, for example, in corporate law, many of the lawsuits are uh, being handled as derivative actions, right? So 
an outside shareholders bring a claim uh, on behalf of the company. And the lawsuit revolves around the behavior of specific individuals that um, the, the plaintiff claims that they breach their duties and harm the company. And so in most cases, what happens is that litigation revolves around the behavior of individuals who, by the time that the judicial opinion or the discovery comes out, they're already not in the company. They're not sitting on the board. They were fired or they left or whatever. And so in that sense, litigation produces what reputation scholars call scapegoating effects. They, uh, they kind of uh, facilitate, they enable sort of a decoupling. The, the company is able to say what happened in the past is due to these specific individuals. Brian was here, and when Brian was managing us, he did all these bad mistakes. But now we have new management, right? And uh, look, even the judge told you that it's all, it was all Brian's fault. And now with the new management, this is not who, this is not who we are going forward. So you shouldn't have any qualms whatsoever about working with us, investing in us, buying from us, uh, because the the problem is attributed to an element of the of the firm. This individual that was subsequently fired is no longer with us. So in that sense, litigation, at least sometimes, mostly in corporate law, creates these effects where the defendant company kind of benefits from litigation. Well, so in the book, you talk a lot about how journalists use information generated in a wide range of different ways by the legal system and how the information generated by journalists has feedback effects with respect to the reputation of a business as perceived by stakeholders, including investors, shareholders, you name it. One question I kind of had was sort of how that communication of information happens and with whether all the parties involved in in that information exchange are kind of speaking the same language. Like specifically, to what extent did you feel like the reporters understood the saliency of what they were reporting in the same way that stakeholders and companies interpreted the reporting in relation to what was salient to them? Right. So absolutely, I think a lot of information gets lost in translation from the courtroom to the court of public opinion. That's undoubtedly, right? And this is um, and, and this is something that I mentioned in the book a few times. Uh, I don't delve into it that much uh, uh, simply because of kind of a scope and brevity. But I think the idea is that um, journalists who are looking for patterns of misbehavior or something like that, they will be the ones proactively trying to call court documents in order to build a story. I think, I think the example that I like perhaps the most is uh, because that was a, a movie that came out when I just started working on the book. Uh, it was the Spotlight movie, if you recall, Brian. I think, I think it came out at, towards the end of 2015. It won the Oscar for Best Film. Um, and when it won the Oscar, uh, I remember reading in the papers that they told us that it won the Oscar because finally Hollywood manages to, to come up with a movie, with a film, that uh, conveys to the general public the importance, the role of investigative reporting in holding the powerful to account. They're holding the um, Catholic Church to account for a systematic cover-up of sexual abuse of kids. But, but when, I, when I watched the film, I realized that most of the drama 
revolves around the courtroom. Physically revolves around the courtroom, right? We we we, we watch the uh, the Boston Globe reporter trying to outrace reporters from other newspapers. Uh, who gets the, to the court clerk first to to get a document? And we watch the the legal team of the Boston Globe fighting a legal fight to uh, um, to uh, documents that were sealed and to um, to expose them and so on and so forth. And once they get these documents, once they once they get their hands on the legal documents from the court docket. These become the smoking gun evidence that there was a cover-up that reached the higher-ups at the Catholic Church. And that's what uh, produces the change. So, so to me, I thought to myself, that tells me that this is not really a story about investigative reporting holding the powerful to account. That's a story about the interactions between these two democracy watchdogs, right? the media, investigative reporters on the one hand, and the courts on the other hand. And if, if it was only the media without the courts, they wouldn't have this information. They would have a story about an accusation by a single kid against a single priest. But once they got the documents from the legal system that allowed them to build it into a story of a systematic cover-up that allowed them to uh, well, you know, get the public backlash, to get the church to admit its mistakes and move on and so on and so forth. And the same thing goes for the flip side. If it was just the legal system without the media, then the legal system would continue settling case after case and with uh, uh, confidential, you know, secret settlements with confidentiality clause. So it was only when the journalists came and pieced together the, the pieces of the puzzles from different uh, lawsuits against different priests and and packaged it nicely and uh, diffused it widely, only then did we get the public backlash, and the public backlash was what um, changed uh, um, behavior. So to me, a lot of the I, – I, I interviewed a lot of those uh, Pulitzer-winning investigative reporters for the project, and they told me things that such as whenever I used the, the, the phrase according to court documents, that in itself kind of boosts the credibility, that kind of – that moves the needle, that, that, that makes sure that my story uh, reverberates. And, and, and so to, to go back to your question, sometimes the investigative reporter will, will, will get a tip from someone, an anonymous tip. Uh, this uh, certain doctor engages in sexual harassment or that certain product has some defective elements to it. And in order to understand whether there's a story here that's worth pursuing, they would do what they call pattern identifying, which is they would like search in Westlaw or Lexis, or they would go to the court physically back then, and they would try to 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 see, or try to examine how many lawsuits exactly were filed against this doctor, how many lawsuits exactly were filed against this manufacturer, and if the industry benchmark is that each doctor say gets uh, three lawsuits per ten years, and this guy got thirty. And I know that there's a story there as a reporter. And I'm starting to put my hands on the documents if I can. And I'm starting to call uh, the victims. And I'm starting calling the uh, uh, the lawyers and so on and so forth. And so that in, in that sense, the, the, the legal system is a, the most important source of uh, media scrutiny these days. Well, so one story I found particularly compelling in the book, and that I think will be special of special interest to people interested in corporations law, was the story around the Disney Corporation, and specifically 
the kind of conventional wisdom of what that story conveyed about Disney as compared to the story you tell about how the relevant stakeholders to the corporation actually understood the information being communicated and specifically how they understood the role of the Delaware courts in communicating that information about the company. I, I, I think that the, the Disney case for corporate law students or for corporate law scholars, perhaps the most anticipated, most important corporate law decisions of the 2000s. Uh, but for me, I focused on the effect on the court of public opinion. And of course, because it was Disney, uh, this corporate law case was covered by the national press like like no other corporate law case I talked to. Uh, um, reporters who were on the beat from the Financial Times, from the Wall Street Journal, from the New York Times, uh, from the LA Times. Everybody was kind of packed into this small courtroom in Wilmington in, in Delaware, and they covered it. And the counterintuitive uh, dynamics that I found there and, and that you alluded to is that, again, counterintuitively, this lawsuit helped Disney. It may, might have hurt the reputations of the individuals who were involved in the scandal, but it helped Disney going forward. It helped them portray kind of a shift from the uh, from the bad kid of corporate governance of the 90s to the role model of corporate governance of the 2000s. And the reason that is that, so perhaps we should kind of give a few background on, on a few background words on the, on the story. The story began, I think, in the mid-90s, where uh, Mike Eisner was number one in Disney back then, um, hired Mike Ovitz, who was a famous um, um, kind of agent in Hollywood back then, to be his number two. And Ovitz was a very successful agent, uh, but sometimes you're simply not suitable to run, to make this shift, to run one of the largest companies in the world. It's a whole totally different ball game. And indeed, he was uh, fired uh, after less than a year on the job, if I recall correctly, but not before the board gave him um, a $140 million severance package, which in 1995 terms is even, you know, it's much bigger than it is today. So uh, shareholders were enraged and they filed a derivative suit uh, claiming that Eisner and, and the other members of the board who approved this deal simply, you know, they breached their duties and they harmed the company. Why would you hire someone that is incompetent? Why would you fire him not for a cause? And why would you give him this $140 million uh, severance package? And so that was the, the legal aspect to it. But that's also how that's also how the event played out in the court of public opinion. So I, 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 I show in the book all these um, columns from, again, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, what have you, uh, packaging this story as a story of uh, greed, the greed gone wrong. You know, um, all these, the mics and mics are simply looting shareholders' money. And then the litigation was very lengthy and uh, involved a lot of uh, discovery and depositions and testimonies and what have you. And then once the judicial opinion came out in mid 2000, it, it changed the way that the media treats the event. Because all of a sudden, because the judicial opinion was much more nuanced. So they explained the context. They explained that uh, Eisner had to hire someone in a hurry because 
his, his previous number two just died in a helicopter crash, and Eisner was suffer was suffering uh, very uh, serious health issues, and they had to have have had to add someone in the company immediately, and then Ovitz in order to lure him from his very uh, nicely earning uh, position, they had to offer him this uh, uh, severance package, and so. And and um, another tidbit that was mentioned in the judicial opinion was that the, you know the stock market actually really really liked the hiring in real time, and so the judge puts forward his judicial opinion, which it, which which does have a lot of scolding, and he's he's, he's talking about uh, Eisner thought that everything is his own magical magic kingdom and everything, but the opinion usually judicial opinions are much more nuanced. Than the initial way that the markets and and, 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 and and the media and everyone reacts to it, especially in today's world in social media. And when ju- the judicial opinion came out, it kind of changed the framing. It said, okay, we now understand what happened here. It's not about someone stealing money from shareholders. It's kind of a, a, a bad coincidence or some circumstances or some mistakes, but honest mistakes. Uh, uh, that they did it out of maybe some lack of lack of competence, but that's not um, calculated disregard for market norms. And so that kind of framing, that kind of packaging completely changes the, the reputational picture. Because if you think that the problem is due to total lack of checks and balances and calculated disregard, and they will always sucker punch me, they will always put profits uh, ahead of everything else, then I don't want to do business with this company going forward. But if you think, if, if, if the framing, if you think that the, the, the bad thing that just happened was due to a mistake, some, you know, um, honest incompetence maybe, then okay, so that's something that companies can learn and grow from, especially if the, the individuals are no longer with the company and the company is with a, with a new management and they promised us that they changed their way. So that allowed companies to kind of recover some of the reputation that they lose. So changing gears a little bit, as a charity law scholar, I have always found attempts to account for corporate philanthropy deeply unsatisfying. But reading your book was the first time that I found a story that actually kind of rang true to me. And it's a story about information generation and communication. I I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you think corporations engage in corporate philanthropy and why they engage in the particular kinds of corporate philanthropy that they do. Right, right. So I think that the the, the good sides for corporate philanthropy and the the bad sides for corporate philanthropy, uh, the explanation that you alluded to what I suggest is kind of a costly signaling explanation, which is to say business companies sacrifice, so to speak, profits in the public interest uh, simply to tell us that they are able to sacrifice profits and live with it. It's like handicap. It's like a handicap match, right? We are handicapping ourselves. And the fact that we are handicapping ourselves tell, might tell the outside world, might tell outside observers that we know that our that our situation, that uh, kind of the products that we have in the pipeline or the internal cash flows that we have um, is actually much better than you think. We can allow it. We can allow ourselves to kind of burn this $100 million uh, uh, gift 
to charity uh, because uh, and, and still meet all the benchmarks that we need to meet. And so in this costly signaling, this handicapping story, um, corporate philanthropy is used by companies to show that they can, that they are strong enough to sacrifice profits in the public interest. And I found that my explanation, in my opinion, is a better fit with the evidence than all the other explanations. So in the other explanations, uh, they say that companies donate because stakeholders like nice companies. I'm willing to pay more for the products of the company that I think is nicer. I'm willing to work for the companies that I think is nicer. But the evidence simply doesn't match that uh, for several reasons. Uh, um, and one reason is that, for example, most the, the, the bulk of corporate donation is coming from cash donations. It's not coming from, uh, say, in-kind or employee release time donations, uh, which is what you would have expected, which is what the theory predicts if you think that it's about stakeholders liking companies that are nice. And the cash donations are a better signal, a more salient, a clearer signal for uh, companies having uh, better internal cash flows than you realize. So kind of a financial soundness, if you will, of the company, financial stability of the company. And, and there are many, others, many other patterns in the, um, in, in the evidence on corporate philanthropy and the link between corporate philanthropy and corporate bottom line and corporate financial performance that help you realize that the reason that stakeholders prefer companies that donate more is not because stakeholders like nice companies. It's rather because the level of donations tell stakeholders something else about the underlying attribute of the company or like uh, the internal free cash flows or the financial soundness or management commitment to not fire employees, the size of the buffer that they have, which is especially important these days, like following COVID and an economic crisis and so on. Well, so you also tell a story about regulators, the incentives for regulators, and how those incentives might actually be in tension with the ability of regulators to engage in the kinds of information generating activities that you think are so important to encouraging reputational effects and good governance. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that dynamic. Right. So, so, so far we've kind of been, um, you know, singing the praise of all these reputational information production benefits that come from litigation or come from regulatory investigation. Uh, but in reality, of course, we shouldn't succumb to the, uh, to the Goldilocks fallacy because in reality, the law uh, doesn't always provide these nice informational benefits, this nice positive externality. And one of the reasons that one of the reasons that the law doesn't provide these benefits is, is what you mentioned, which is regulators' incentives. Because sometimes the party to the dispute, be it if it's private litigation, the plaintiff and the defendant, or if it's public enforcement, the regulator and the, uh, and the regulated entity, and the party to the dispute, precisely because these reputational benefits, these informational benefits, they are positive externalities meaning that they benefit others, they warn others, they warn third parties observers, then the parties to the specific disputes, they don't, in, they, they, they don't internalize all, the, all these informational benefits. So if regulators, regulators might choose to 
um, trade off money for information in a sense that the companies will be glad to pay a little bit more. Mostly it's the insurance companies that, that pay for them anyhow, but the companies will be glad to settle early and to settle for hefty sums if the regulators let them kind of dictate, say, the timing or the content of the press release. So if I as a company, if I have to choose between paying you a little bit more to settle the case or uh, paying you a little less and then you, you, you'll say something bad about me in the press release, I'm taking the former option. So I'm taking kind of a, I don't have to admit anything. I don't, I don't, I don't have to deny, but I don't have to admit anything and I'll pay you more and it's the cost of doing business. And at least I limited my, my, um, re- the reputational fallout that may come if Brian as the regulator will say that Roy is running, running some shenanigans and there's a total breakdown of checks and balances. So these kind of settlements where they pay large amounts, very large amounts, and they settle very quickly, but the regulator doesn't give us anything informative in the press release, these kinds of settlements are good for the defendant, good for the defendant company, because they limit the reputational sanction. They're good for the regulator, because the regulator gets to show, uh, gets to ramp up the numbers that um, you know um, he or she can then marshal to Congress and to say, uh, look at these record enforcement numbers, the numbers, the number of enforcement action we started, uh, the amount of money we collected, because that's what they're being measured on. So these kind of settlements are good for both parties to the dispute, but they are bad for the market overall. For the market overall, it would be better. For the Terence, it would be better if regulators would simply tell us exactly what they found, help us distinguish between companies that were really bad or companies that made some mistake, or companies that are high quality, companies that are low quality. So as it currently stands, regulatory enforcement, the main problem with regulatory enforcement is not that like the SEC leaves money on the table on, in its settlements because it doesn't. The problem is that it leaves information on the table. The, big, bigger, the biggest problem with regulatory enforcement is that it underproduces information, information that could have helped the market, information that could have facilitated facilitated, so to speak, reputational discipline. Well, see, you tell a kind of similar story about arbitration insofar as the sort of normal kind of conventional wisdom on contracting is that, you know, we should let parties agree amongst themselves on how to resolve disputes if they want to. And a lot of people might say in an arbitration situation, like one party might be advantaged over the other, you suggest that maybe we ought to be more concerned about the people who don't get to be a party to the arbitration at all. Right, right. So, so I, let, let's start with an example, right? And the example uh, is the Wells Fargo phony account scandal. Right? Everybody knows about the Wells Fargo phony account scandal, but how do how how do we know about it? How did it break? And 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 the scandal broke by again investigative reporters from the LA Times. They broke the story in 2013. And what I do in the book is I ask the prior question. I go one step back and I ask, how did the LA Times reporter, how were they able to get their hands on information that allowed this uncovering of the phony account scandal? And what I found out is that they were relying on information coming from labor law disputes from disgruntled employees uh, that, you know, they were pushed 
to, to open all these uh, phony accounts with everyone. And then they, they were fired when they didn't meet uh, these benchmarks. And they, they filed lawsuits and information came out during these lawsuits. And the LA Times reporter used that information to piece together the pieces of the puzzle. So in today's world, fast forward to 2020, we have the Epic System Supreme Court decision, which basically allows those mandatory arbitration clauses with class action waivers. And, and so nowadays, the bank employees would have these clauses in their contracts and they would not go to court. The, dis- the disputes will be either completely diffused or they would be handled behind closed doors. And so the next time that the bank engages in, ch- in, in such shenanigans, we have much lower chances that the reporters would be able to um, um, to, to, to find this pattern and, and, and to report on it. So to generalize, I think the idea here is that proliferation of these mandatory arbitration clauses are bad for the market because when, when, we, when we consider them, the, the existing debate, just like you said, centers around consent and compensation. So if it's corporate law, can shareholders be held to consent to arbitration provisions in the company's documents? Or are shareholders, our consumers, our workers better off with arbitration, given that litigation currently offers them uh, very little compensation with very high fees? Yet what th- this debate misses the forest for the trees, because even if shifting from litigation to arbitration may be good for a specific company and its investor and its clients and its workers. I doubt it. I highly doubt it. But let's, let's just assume that it, that, that, that it is better for, for the site of the dispute. It would prove detrimental to the market overall. Because by adopting this mandatory arbitration provision with class action waivers, what we do is that we channel dispute resolution from a public channel to a behind-closed-door channel. And by that, we lose the positive externality in the form of quality information on corporate behavior that comes with litigation. So a shift to mandatory arbitration may, you could think that it reduces the administrative cost of litigation, but it, it hurts the ability of the market to discipline itself. It, it reduces the effectiveness of reputation on deterrence. So Roy, in closing, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how this kind of dialectical approach to looking at the relationship between law and reputation ought to affect our thinking about how to manage like litigation and reputational and it's kind of reputational effects on on the ground in relation to how people have thought about it previously. I mean like what are the big kind of takeaways do you think in terms of how this ought to inform our thinking? So, so, so there's the basic level uh, takeaway, um, high altitude takeaway, and there are some specific takeaways. The high altitude takeaway, the mo- in the most general level, once you realize that there's all, all there are all these interconnections between law and reputation, uh, you realize that the two kind of binary camps that have been dominating the the debate are wrong. So, one camp is leave things to the market because market forces will do their magic, and another camp calls for ramping up legal sanctions or legal intervention. So, but those who oppose legal intervention don't recognize that the legal system is endogenous. The legal system is very important for the functioning of market discipline. Uh, market, so to go back to the, the example that we started the podcast with, you know, our market discipline of product recalls is a function of media coverage. 
And media coverage is a function of litigation and regulatory investigation. So uh, without effective litigation, without effective regulatory investigation, there will be no effective market discipline. And the other camp, the camp that advocates for more legal sanctions, fail to recognize that the legal system is able to shape behavior also indirectly, not by imposing sanctions, simply without in, or without interfering with business decision, if we're talking corporate law now. Sometimes the most effective, the most realistic way to promote deterrence is not to increase the legal sanction or the direct legal intervention, but rather to think about and increase the quantity and the quality of information that you're producing. So that's the general level. And from there, you can go on and you can think about uh, kind of more specific takeaways, such as the case against secret settlements or uh, government agencies need to grant a FOIA request. Uh, judges need to resist the temptation to approve the sending of court documents too easily. Or the, what you just asked me about a couple of minutes ago, regulators need to resist the temptation to quickly settle enforcement action uh, and they need to uh, insist on releasing a very detailed investigatory report. Well, Roy, thanks so much for coming back on the show. The book was great. There's so much more in it than we were able to talk about. And I really hope listeners will check it out because it really changed my perspective on, on the questions that you're talking about. Thank you so much, Brian. You're too kind. Thank you. on
with me.